Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long. And now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, James Long. How are you? You know, except for what's going on out there in the big wide world, you know, Baruch Hashem, life is good. <laughs> so you mean it's like it's like we're on an ark? Yeah. Did you read that article that I sent you from uh, the site that's called Quantum Torah? I did. Yeah, and, and the, the gentleman is this physicist who, who called the ark the same design as a cell, the life-giving properties of a cell, the way it's, it encloses the important uh, components. And, you know, that's, that's really uh, Eretz Israel. Is, well, first is, of all, there is that idea in, in the Midrash that uh, there's even a statement that our sages make that in the, that in the future— uh, towards you know the big shakeup uh, that will precede the redemption, there's going to be uh, a, an epic um, drama worldwide, not a flood, because Hashem promised that there never would be another flood all throughout the world. But there will be a, a huge shakeup, and the and the land of Israel will be, in so many words, the the Noah's Ark for the whole world at that yeah. time. Yeah. But but I got to tell you also, Jim. You know, here in Israel, we're we're doing these in Hebrew. It's called kapsulot, which means actually capsule, mm-hmm. which basically means that we have very small units enclosed in plastic. <laughs> you know, like in public buildings and in schools and in and in the synagogues. Um, well, actually, we're supposed to be outside still, but there, you know, p- there are these corridors that are separated by plastic, and only a few people can be in one in one little cubbyhole at once. And also, like this, these little, these capsulo, these plastic little little <laughs> encapsulations, are also kind of like everyone is in their own ark, you mm-hmm. know, and everybody's weathering this this flood of 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 uh, COVID, uh, and all the other things that are that are uh, going on in the world. And here in this month of Cheshvan, when Mar Cheshvan, when we've already begun our beseeching Hashem for life-giving rain. This is this is the time of blessing at, at the same time as we, we spoke all, all about that. And in this month that we spoke so much about that, you know, has so little um, appeal, as it were, that has so little color, you know that there is a very important occasion which actually is coming up tonight, the 11th of Mar Cheshvan, and that is the anniversary of the passing of Rachel, our mother Rachel. Oh. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are four matriarchs, um, Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel. And Rachel, even though she's the mother really of the, of the two tribes, really, Yosef and Benjamin, she has a very unique place in the heart of Israel. And she is very, very strongly associated with, uh, with prayer, really. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, um, I don't know how it's going to be now with the regulations and the social distancing and the travel restrictions with COVID, but, uh, so I assume it won't be like every other year. But generally speaking, the 11th day of Mar Cheshvan, the anniversary of the passing of our mother Rachel, is a day that thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people flock to her tomb in Beit Lechem. Yeah. And um, it's, a, it's a really powerful experience to be there. In fact, it's the first time I was there as a young man. It was one of the most powerful spiritual experiences I ever had in my life was going to Rachel's tomb. And, um, but I want, what I want to tell all of our wonderful listeners is that it's, a, it's really a day to pour out your heart to Hashem in her merit. And I'll tell you why in a moment. Well, she has a very, very special merit. Um, and of course, to go today, you know, in our time uh, to Rachel's tomb is such a different experience than it was years ago. And when's the last time you were there, Jim? Uh, the tomb of Rachel. Yeah. Uh, I've only been to the I've only been to the tomb of the other matriarchs. The one you're speaking of is is buried apart from the rest. Well, it's exactly but, as as we learn in Parshat Vayishlach. Uh, yeah. Kind of Coming up in a few weeks, I'll just get the verse exactly when she was in childbirth with Benjamin, mm-hmm. and uh, she passed away in right. in childbirth. She was buried along the way in um, 
Because the only tomb is that it's, I'm... It's in, it's in Genesis 35. It's in Genesis yeah. 35. Um, um, and it came to pass as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. Thus Rachel died and was buried on the road to Ephrat, which is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a monument over her grave. It is the monument of Rachel's grave until today. So the reason I, I bring this up, of course, for, the, for our listeners um, that might be wondering why we're talking about this, it's because in Torah tradition... There is a concept of praying at the tomb of the righteous and not that we are praying to that person. There's absolutely no such thing in, in Jewish thought, in authentic Torah thought. We're not praying to that person. There's no such thing as praying to anyone but Hashem. This person is not an intermediary or any such thing. But the inspiration uh, of this place becoming like a portal for a really sincere thought of repentance and of binding to Hashem and of wanting to be a better person is, you know, when we see these places and we feel the tremendous sanctity emanating from them and we understand that this is not like a legend, you know, or a myth. These people really did live and their lives were so, were so dedicated to others and, and their, and with such tremendous sacrifice, the things that they did and the, and the levels that they reached of spirituality, that it becomes like a, like a transformative experience to be in their presence. And, and that's the idea of, of the place being a place that's conducive to opening up the heart and to and to sincere prayer that's why we go to these places and of course they also they have a merit in other words they they are meritorious because of their deeds so that's the idea of of, of going to one of these places in any event the reason i asked you jim if you've if you've been recently to rachel's tomb is because uh, and, and people at home that are listening that want to look up online, uh, maybe just a, a, an illustration of Rachel's tomb, there's a classic kind of like um, painting, a, a classic. It's actually based on a, on a real photograph from, let's say, the late 1800s of what the scene was, uh, very much like what I just read from Parshat Vayishlach in Genesis of this of this dome-covered little building with a beautiful tree like bent over it alone on a pathway in a field and it was on the outskirts of Bethlehem and it's a it's a very um, evocative and and um, poignant kind of visage this this famous classic picture of Rachel's tomb and when I first um, visited Rachel's tomb in 1977 that's more or less what it looked like although Bethlehem already had been more uh, developed and so the town already came came out to there and then when I first moved, I'll never forget, when I first moved to Israel in, in 1982, um, and my wife and I were staying in um, the southernmost neighborhood called Gilo, mm -hmm. we were actually able to walk on a Shabbat to Rachel's tomb from there. It was about a 25-minute walk. And things were so different then in 1982, that unless we were extremely naive, that the two of us carrying our our um, infant son, you know, my, you know, my oldest son. Okay. So he was then an infant and I kind of strapped him uh, in this front carrier to myself. And we walked on the Arab road to Bethlehem, to Rachel's tomb, something that, uh, that you can't do Amazing. today. Right. But what I wanted to tell you is as far as the, the contrast between whoever remembers that beautiful image of what it used to look like today, you know, um, uh, Bethlehem has uh, is 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 like what do you, what is it called even <laughs> the autonomous control of the Palestinian entity, right? Right, and so and so um, Bethlehem is is not in Israeli jurisdiction that is controlled by the Palestinian Authority, but yet a, a special arrangement was made for Rachel's tomb to be in a, kind of like a, a um, an island an island in itself. Uh, like kind of like a like sticking out, literally in a sleeve, extending. Uh, a, a, literally, 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 a corridor was built, like a fortress, mm -hmm. from Jerusalem to Rachel's tomb. It is like a a uh, a bunker. It is like a like a a, a fortified uh, tunnel, and it's like a. An army zone. Basically, it has to be. And, and in order to get there, at one point, you have to leave your private car behind and be, and be accompanied by the military. You have to go into a special bus, be accompanied by the military. Because the Palestinians, even though there are high walls that are built around Rachel, they actually can, um, are constantly throwing 
uh, Molotov cocktails at the at the Jews that are coming to worship at Rachel's tomb. So, the, so the, the idea is that that you know you're going towards to Bethlehem to what was once this pastoral kind of image, and it has been transformed into this very um, overwhelming, this very this very kind of like. Um, you know, just, 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 how, how do I describe it exactly? Like a war zone or. Yeah, it's been, it's been transformed into, into, into this very, you know, heavy feeling of, of, um, of threat, of isolation, of danger. And the irony is so, is so exquisite because it's Rachel, it's Rachel. And so it, it's, and, and, and what did the verse tell us in, in Jeremiah 31 that Rachel is crying for her children. So I want, I want to talk about that verse a little bit now because in honor, in her honor, because tonight is the anniversary of her passing. But it's like, I feel that so strongly. And I when, when you, when I go there, it's like, you feel her crying because we have basically taken her and put her in a prison. That's basically what that, what this is. They took that whole beautiful building and they encased it in a, in a, in a bunker. Yeah. And built a fortress all around it to protect the the Jews that are going there to pray because they will be an open target. And because the the so-called Palestinians that we have a so-called uh, arrangement with uh, con con continuously and consistently um, uh, take shots at the at the Jews. So so she is now kind of like encased in this in this concrete sleeve fortified with all sorts of all sorts of um, watchtowers and, and machine gun stations and everything. And that's this, that's the situation, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> what I wanted to talk about is, um, and again, just my, my, um, my plea to all of our listeners to take advantage of the day um, tomorrow, tonight, the 11th of Marcheshvan and to, and to really use it as a day of prayer in the, in the merit of, of Rachel. So in Jeremiah 31, we have these very moving verses, and uh, it speaks about it speaks about Rachel. Je Jeremiah thirty-one verse fourteen begins: "Thus said Hashem, a voice is heard on high, wailing, bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children; she refuses to be consoled for her children, for they are gone. Thus said Hashem, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your accomplishment, the word of Hashem, and they will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future." the word of Hashem, and your children will return to their border. So I wanted to, to um, offer a little bit of background information from Chazal, a little bit of insight from the oral Torah about what these verses are referring to. So the idea is, first of all, when Jacob buried Rachel along the way, that was a very, very difficult thing to do. And in fact, when he first met her, in the Torah portion of Vayetzeh, we read that when he met her, he kissed her and he lifted up his voice and cried. And our, and our sages tell us that the reason that he cried is because he saw with, with prophecy that he would not be buried with her, yeah. which is a difficult thing. And the reason that he buried her along the way and not in the tomb of, of the patriarchs, which he could have just taken her, he was on the way to Hebron, he buried her there because he knew that in the future her children would be going out to exile and that she would pray for them. And indeed, the Midrash states that she, that she came out and she stood by and she prayed for them as they were passing by her very tomb on the, on the way to the, the Babylonian exile. And this, of course, is still in effect today, her prayers. But the background of the verses is as follows. According to another Midrash, when God made the decree against Israel uh, at the time, well, let's say the decree of the retribution at the time of the destruction of the temple. The, de the decree could have been much, much worse. It could have been a, a much greater destruction than simply the destruction of the temple because of, of Hashem's wrath. And the, the Midrash rather whimsically, if you want to put it that way, paints a, a picture of, of all of these different um, elements that came forward and tried to plead the cause of Israel. It says, it says the Torah itself came forward and, and, and begged Hashem for mercy and Hashem didn't listen. And Shabbat came forward and begged Hashem for, for mercy and Hashem didn't listen. And the letters of the alphabet came forward and asked Hashem for mercy and he didn't listen. And, and, the, and the Moshe and all the forefathers came forward. 
and didn't, and he didn't listen. And he was going to make the decree much more harsh than it than it was. Simply the, the destruction of the temple. And then it says suddenly, Rachel jumped up. That's the exact language. And she appeared before the Holy One, blessed be He. And she said, she related the following to Hashem. She said, you know, that Jacob and I knew that my father Lavan, who is a notorious trickster. Yeah. Knew, knew that he was going to try to to um, to pull a fast one and substitute Leah for myself. We knew that he was going to try to do that, and so we made a code between us, yeah. a, secret, a secret code, <laughs> so that the night of the of the wedding, Jacob would know uh, that it's me. Because according to Torah, of course, the room is supposed to be dark, and we conduct ourselves with modesty. So he would not recognize who she is, and the code was it was something I'm not I'm not going to tell you on the air what it was, but it was a certain a certain secret code. You can email me, Jim. So anyway, so I think I know what it is already. Anyway, because okay. I love this story. Well, anyway, and of course you're you're a Torah scholar, Jim, which I have tremendous regard for. So what happened was that she she at the last minute she had second thoughts. And she did not want her sister to be embarrassed. And um, she said to herself, I can't, I can't allow my sister to be, to be embarrassed. And so she gave over the code to Leah. Yeah. And so the wedding night, and this is a complicated story because there are other repercussions that a, that a Torah oh, scholar would down the line, of course. There's many, many, many repercussions, but this we can't make the whole podcast about this. But <laughs> yeah. this is a whole this is a whole class. But anyway, uh, he she gave it over to Jacob. So Jacob thought that it was Rachel that he was with. But now that a lot of people know that part of the story, a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. But then she goes deeper. Open up your heart in the deepest way. Then she goes deep and she says to Hashem, but not only that, not only did I tell her the code, I, I, I hid underneath the bed. And when he spoke, to, I responded so that he heard my voice. And she, <laughs> and she says, and she says, and I was not jealous. I departmentalized. I did not want my sister to be embarrassed. I, I just dealt with it. I just dealt yeah. with it. And I, and this is what I did. And I did not feel any jealousy. I, I worked on it and I overcame myself. She says to Hashem and she says, and you, and you, that you're Hashem, you're, 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 you're jealous that, that, that Israel worshiped idols that are nothing but sticks and stones. So they had, they had a backsliding. They, they made a mistake. I could do that and I'm only a human being and you're jealous. And when she said that, according to the Midrash, Hashem said, because of you, your children will return to their borders. And that's the meaning of of these words in Jeremiah 31, that there is reward for for what you've done, that that your children will return because of um, her um, selflessness that she performed for her sister. What were the exact words? Thus said Hashem, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your accomplishment. There is hope for your future. So this is just such a powerful uh, idea uh, of her representing this level of uh, tremendous self-sacrifice. Think about our world today and the, 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 the tenderness and the care that you've just described is almost unknown today. It's totally unknown. I think that I think what I what I just related about what she said what she said that she did is mm-hmm. is something from uh, some other world. And yet she was the daughter of Lavan, uh, a real rascal. And Lavan was it was a baddie. Well, look at Rivka. Rebecca yeah. was the daughter of Betuel. Betuel was a very evil person. Right. And then you have Esau, who came from the best parents you'd ever want. And he's the complete polar opposite of his blessed parents. Yeah. And then you have the star of our show, which, who, which who we want to talk about, Avraham, whose father was actually an idolater. A huge idolater and almost and, like... And a retailer. A retailer. <laughs> Terach was actually an idol salesman. But before that, he was a captain in the, the army of Nimrod. In fact, he was one of his princes. 
And the if there's any time that, that we want to go into the oral tradition and the uh, the area where we fill in the blanks in this great person's life, when I say great person, I mean Avraham, the, the patriarch, because this is the beginning of his story in the Parsha Lech Lecha. And it's so amazing because just last week we're talking about, you know, the flood and the and the uh, the aftermath of, of the repopulation of the world results in the building of the tower and this rejection of Hashem's even his even the rejection of his promises that he would not flood the world again. You have this one lone figure who rises up and seizes power. We call him Nimrod. That's what the Torah calls him. And as you remarked earlier when we were talking before the podcast, we're at a place on the planet now, historically, in this Parsha, where things look like they're going to go terribly awry all over again. And the world has fallen into idol worship. You've got a man who is uh, sitting on the throne of power, who's the first king after the flood. And other kings rise up, but he is the world leader of his day, even though there are other minor uh, monarchs, if you minor will. despots, minor despots. Minor, but Nimrod exactly. was the was the uh, the Bill Gates of his generation. What did I say that? Ouch. He oh. was. <laughs> I suppose you could cut that out. Nimrod was the 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 master. Um, yes. Yeah. At that time, and and there is um, there is when when the when he is spoken to by the creator and he says, go from yourself, go from your father's house, leave Ur Chazdim. Can that also be read as leave the furnace or the fires of Chazdim? That is the, is the um, homiletical interpretation of our sages. I mentioned that in this week's Torah video as well. That's because, because Avraham emerges Basically, at the end of Parshat Noach, he emerges from obscurity. And right. we don't know who he is. He hasn't been discussed before, but there's a, a brief genealogy at the end of, of Parshat Noach that uh, is Tarach's genealogy. And, and, uh, and, and Avram, Avram, who was, as he was called then, is, is mentioned. And then suddenly we hear that Tarach is leaving and he's taking, uh, and he's taking Avram with him. And uh, well, the and, reason, the reason, and 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 he and here and here he is, he's, and he and he left from this place called Or Kastim, and that's yeah. all that's all we know. Yeah. And our sages explain that this is actually a a reference to the Or, the fire of of Kastim of the right. Chaldees, which is a reference to this death sentence that Nimrod, who again was this was this uh, terrible. Um, King, who the first king, by the way, in history, he was the because back back in uh, Breshit, we read that he started to be a mighty man. He right. was the, fir the first of the of the mighty men, and so uh, he actually Avraham uh, in in as part of the process of his of his tremendous you know um, soul searching and analysis of of the universe to to discover that there's only one god he engaged in all sorts of disputations with all the leaders and all the and mm -hmm. all the authorities and everything and it came it came to nimrod's attention and nimrod realized this is going to be a very big problem for my gig that i have going of uh, right. of, of manipulation and so he he passed this this death sentence on avram to be thrown into this fire yeah, well, and, there's this uh, whole there's this whole backstory that we we don't exactly. get in the Torah because the Torah language is so very specific. Well, I, I want you to know that in the in the in the video this week again, I I do mention that backstory pr pretty um, good vividly. But I but I but I, another thing I want to ask you: Why do you think it is that uh, that the Torah does not mention? The backstory, and and of course, think, we, we who believe in the in the oral tradition understand that the, that there is a, a totally inseparable, uh, irrevocable bond between the written Torah and all of the of the um, I don't want to call it information, all of the body of Torah that Hashem gave over to Moshe at Mount Sinai, including mm -hmm. the backstory that is written between the lines and that this is the ultimate wisdom, highest wisdom of Hashem that he wanted it to be kept alive in this manner. But, but I have a really 
interesting idea of why Can why I, doesn't the Torah record it? Well, I, I think the I think the key lies in the verse that tells us how old Avram Avinu is when he leaves the uh, the quote house of his father and and goes to the promise what will become the promised land and it's this very curious thing where it tells us he's seventy five years of age and there are there it's also interesting because his father is mentioned in the Torah and his father his father's age is given and again this is this is a pointer to the how profound every single word and every sentence in the Torah is in that it is so completely talk about, you know, you, you windows. These are, these are like you click on this. If you could click on the verse, the Torah would open up into other links and tell you so much about that person. And first of all, if I understand this right, the reason that we are told, because you know, the, the physical description of of all the central figures of the of the Torah are given very briefly. And sometimes we don't even know what some of these people look like. We know Sarah was beautiful, which is very pivotal to to the narrative. We also know that uh, and Rachel know that and Rachel was beautiful. Rachel was very beautiful. And the the thing, the reason, first of all, to my understanding, that we are told that he is seven that Avram is 75, is that that is really when his mission actually began, his real mission in life, everything up, this is amazing. It wasn't until he was 75 years of age that Avraham set out to fulfill what he was born to do. Isn't that remarkable? 75 years of age. In other words, that's when he basically went out to the into the world to bring his message. Yes. And that, everything and, and that was the, the beginning of his career, in other words, because he is the one who brought the message of the one living God to the whole world. It's the same way with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, we we are told Moses' age, uh, when he is when he has had all of these amazing experiences, when he has gone off as a young man, he's joined an army and he finally ends up in, in the land of Midian and all these things that happened for 60 odd years, that's all left out of the Torah because when he is, when he hits his, what is his 80th birthday is, I believe when he's 80, that's when he is, he is ready. He is the man for the time. So, so this is the reason I think that the, the Torah uh, doesn't want us to be, um, the, well, first of all, the Torah, because Hashem takes it for granted that that uh, when we read the Torah, we're going to know the backstory, and we're going to see that where he is, where Avraham, where he has arrived at, all these experiences. Because you know, I I had to reread this last night because I thought to myself, where was where was it, when Avraham was born. 1948 after Adam. He was born 1,948 years after Adam. And we know that the tower of Babel, Nimrod's tower fell 1,996 years after Adam. So a lot of people don't realize this, Rabbi, especially people who are new to the Torah. They don't realize that, um, that Avram is a contemporary of Nimrod. Just because he has left the scene in the in the, the text of the Torah does not mean that he is no longer part of, of history or his impact on history. In fact, he this is the meaning behind the, behind Orkastim. It was Nimrod who sought to kill Avram. It was Nimrod who had him brought in. It was Nimrod who had him thrown into the furnace. And then when Avram emerged unscathed, that's when his his career it just skyrocketed because word of this went all over the world. And, and you know where he was. You know where he brought their children to him to, for him to teach them about God. Right. You know where he was when the tower. So he was alive when the tower was built. But you know where he was all this time? He was hiding. Well, he wasn't. They hid him away. He was. He was living with Noah, and learning from Noah and Shem about the world before the flood and about the one true God. And I should say that that all of the Chazal, the, the the Jewish sages, tell us that it didn't take Noah and Shem to tell him that there was a God. 
and that there was one God. He actually, this is what makes him so remarkable. Avraham came to this on his own. Yes. I, and and I, again, I, I want to speak about that in detail uh, in, in our video this week. How did he do that? How did he, how did he reach that conclusion, especially considering his milieu and the world in which he, in, he came in? The, and especially considering the fact that he had no teacher. He had no teacher. Um, I, I just want to mention before I forget, Jim, that Nimrod, you know, he was around for quite a while. Yes. And uh, ultimately, he also was around in Yitzhak's time. Yes. And it was Esav who it, killed yeah, him. Who killed him, exactly. Esav actually murdered Nimrod yeah. because he coveted his coat. Yes. And well, that, you know, uh, don't, I'm not doing it. it. It's a whole, it's a very important amazing. story. Because the, the, uh, it is because of Esav killing Nimrod, it, he, he was, according to the sages, he was given this vision when Avraham was uh, Avraham was fifty years of age, and and Nimrod had the dust of the tower had settled, everybody had regrouped. Uh, Avraham Avinu comes out of Hayden, he he leaves the house of Noah, he comes back to visit his father, and he discovers his father is completely given in to idolatry and is even creating and marketing and selling idols of wood and stone and clay. And it is because of that episode that he is taken before Nimrod and he doesn't, he doesn't give in to idol worship. And he says, okay, you're going into the fire. And then when he emerges from the fire, even Nimrod, he sees this, this miracle of Avram coming out of the fire and Nimrod falls before Avraham to worship him. And, and then Avram says, you still don't get it, do you? You still don't get it. You still don't get it. You're, you're, you're locked in the material realm. You right. think that uh, flesh and blood rules the world when it's it's the invisible God. Right. And so he goes off and he, he leaves him alone. And then like, when, like two years later, two years later, when he's 50 years of age, um, he, he um, well, actually, the, the, the incident with the idol happens when he's 50. But two years after that, when he's 52, Nimrod has this dream about a, um, a descendant of Abraham's that will bring down his, his empire and, will, and actually his influence through history and also will slay Nimrod. And he thinks it's someone in the immediate, uh, it'll be like one of Abraham's kids, and he doesn't realize it's it's going to be farther down the line. It's going to be a sob. Right, right. And so that's when he rears up again a second time, and he wants to have Avraham killed. And it's about that time that Avraham gets this message from the Creator and says, you need to leave. And that's when he goes to Haran right. with his father. And that coat was so important because it was, it was through that coat that Nimrod um, had all that power. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. really his power. It was that coat. Why it's so is um, is a different uh, subject altogether, um, and uh, it very much reminds me of the Wizard of Oz kind of hiding behind the curtain. It was it wasn't <laughs> even him. It was like a hologram. Yeah, that he was that he was projecting. Well, the the, the animals would. would right. he, oh, but that Jim, let's save yeah. it. Let's save it. I know. Let's let's save it. Let's so save anyway, members what only. Is, what I want to do is I want to set the stage for where we are. I've, I've already done so. And and uh, go ahead. You want to say? I, I just want to say two things quickly before. One one is um, I I really think that one of the reasons why Torah does not detail the amazing adventures of Abraham before before this. In in other words, Lech Lecha starts and starts recording Abraham's uh, career after once he's ready to embark on his on his world tour, as it were. Yeah. Once he's ready to hit the circuit and his mission, and, 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 his mission. and you know, the, again, the first words that Hashem says to him, Hashem hasn't spoken to anybody in so long. And now he has someone to talk to that wanted to talk to him. And he says, get out, get out of here, go for yourself, or even better, go to yourself, go lecha into yourself as, a, as introspection, as an inner journey. But anyway, I have a, a feeling that one of the reasons why Torah does not record explicitly all of this incredibly rich backstory and prehistory, which, which of course our sages do relate to us, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that every person needs to go through 
the type of thing that Avraham went through to find Hashem on their own. Amen. Yeah. It's a very personal thing. One of the things that we really take home as a, as a life-changing lesson from Avraham's career is what he went through, again, which I describe a little bit more, more in, in depth in the video this week, what he went through to find Hashem, what he had to go through to find Hashem on his own with no teacher. So, so that's, that's one thing. Another point, Jim, I just wanted to mention is um, uh, we did an injustice before, I realized, when we were talking about Rachel, and I, and I said, oh, she was Lavan's daughter, because you, you, you started to say that he, she was a descendant of Avram, but the fact is she was family, and so I, I should have mentioned that that's why uh, Yitzchak sent um, Yaakov uh, to, uh, to, to Lavan's house because he wanted him to, you know, I'll read it to you. So we can't forget that Isaac summoned Jacob and blessed him and instructed him and said to him, do not take away from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Betuel, your mother's father, and take away from there from the daughters of Lavan, your mother's brother. So Rachel was actually a cousin. Yeah. And that's just important to mention. All right. Well, the, um, yeah, I, I've, uh, I think I'm suffering from uh, too many facts and being 72 years of age this month, actually two months from now, um, the, the, the stuff gets in disarray in my head or something. But <laughs> anyway, what's, what's, what's also very interesting about this is I, I alluded to it in, in last week's uh, discussion that I'm working on this documentary. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the documentary, and this is just a brief digression, is I want to I want to put forth the idea and, and show people that we still have remnants of this in the legends and the, the, the place names in the Middle East of these adventures that we just talked about. And that is even when you go, because, you know, this story is even in, in the, uh, the, uh, the Muslims even tell this story and they tell the Muslim people, the Muslims even tell about the fires of Kazdim. And, and of course, Abraham, Abraham is very, very important to the Muslims. To, exactly. He is the father and of Ishmael. And one of the things I hope to, to be able to show is that, all of these things did not take place in the area that we today call Iraq. Uh, Nimrod's power extended all over the Levant, all over. And so, yes, he, he did, his, his influence did extend down to that region. But all of this narrative, really, uh, the tower, uh, these adventures with Avram takes place really in deep southern Turkey. And even if you go today to a place called Sanla Urfa, which within that name, Sanla Urfa, is the name Urfa, which within Urfa is the name Ur. And even if you go there, there's a little uh, region near Sanla Urfa called Balika Gol, and it's a pool. And the Arabs will tell you that the, uh, the, this is where Avram was thrown into the fire by, by King Nimrod. Uh, they used to have signs. Yeah, this, they used to have signs, and they would say, this is where the prophet Ibrahim wow. was, was thrown into the fire. I remember seeing one of those in an old travel book. And it's there, it's, it's there near Urfa. And the whole region really has names. Like there is a, there's a little village named Surak, which sounds very much like uh, the great-great-grandfather of Avram called Serug. And there's, uh, there's Mardin which sounds like the name of Nimrod's son, Mardon, who, by the way, died in a, in a battle that, that Nimrod was waging. And then I have a theory, this is a wild one, I believe that, that, uh, that the name of the country of Turkey is derived from Terach. Wow, Jim, that's it, amazing. Well, if you, look, if you look at where the name is derived from, it's derived from, it, they, they, they trace it back to around 800 uh, BC, BCE, before the Common Era. And there was a people called the people of, of uh, Terach. And if, you, if, you, if we employ the, um, what they call Grimm's Laws, which Isaac Moses teaches us, you take the name Terach and you take the modern name of Turkey, the, the consonantal uh, makeup of that name is almost the same. If you take, there's a T and an R and a K sound with Terak, and there's also a T and an R and a K sound in Turkey. 
So because he had such influence, he was a prince of, of Nimrod's army, um, and he was well-known, great renown. His departure with his son to leave the ranks of the people of, of Kazdim and to establish this community in, in Haran even spoke to the people of the region like, oh, even the father is changing his mind. And, and of course, we know that Avraham Avinu, when he, when he left Haran to move to the land of Canaan, Terok stayed behind. And, and his, his age is given when he passed away, but that does not mean that he died there immediately thereafter. He lived, uh, Terok lived all the way up to the time of the birth of um, Yaakov. That's how long he lived. But the, for the same reason that we just mentioned, the reason that his name is no longer seen in the narrative is that we, as a reader of the Torah, can no longer learn anything from the life of Terach. The life of Terach was basically how not to live. Wow. And so his, his departure from the narrative didn't mean he died. It, it simply meant that God said— He wasn't relevant you, anymore. Right. You, he's not relevant, exactly. Great, great choice of words. So speaking of relevancy and how yes to live, we find a, a very, very unusual um, usage of, of Hebrew. In back, way back in the Genesis narrative, in Parshat Breshit, in chapter 2 of Genesis, in verse 5, we have this verse. It says, it says these are the generations of heaven and earth— when they were created on the day the Hashem God made heaven and earth. And there's a word here in Hebrew, and it, it, the verse in Hebrew reads, Ela toldot Hashemayim v'ha'aretz behibaram biyom asot Hashem elokim eretz v'shamayim. These are the generations of earth and heaven, of heaven and earth, when they were created on the day that Hashem created them. But this word, when they were created, it's a strange formation and it's actually Bihibaram is the letters of Avraham. Mm. And so we're translating the word here as when they were created, just kind of for lack of a better way of translating it. But it's, it's a borrowed kind of um, construction that the Torah is making here as if the main point was to allude to Avraham in this word, uh, which is an, a, a part of the accounting of creation. And, and our sages basically understand from this that what the verse is conveying is the thought that the heavens and the earth were created in the merits of Avraham or actually for the sake of Avraham. And, and the idea that that's really expressing is that if people do not recognize Hashem as the creator, then why? What, what's it all for? Why? Why did Hashem bring forth creation? So the idea of this verse alluding to Avraham, who of course Hashem calls in the Torah, the, the one who loves me, and he calls him the one, Avraham, who actually reflected God's own oneness because he was so unique in the stance that he took for, you know, for God's oneness as he, as he demonstrated with Nimrod. This, he, he is kind of like the validation of creation because at a, at a time when basically the entire world forgot that there was any God or else was totally invested in denying yeah. that there was any God. Avraham comes along and he basically, first of all, through his own incredible faith and wisdom, uh, he came to the conclusion that indeed there is a God. And Again, how he did that without a without a teacher is a testimony to the incredible integrity and um, and honesty, brutal honesty, and self knowledge. The the way the road upon which he embarked in order to to arrive at this conclusion. And again, I I really speak about this in, in much greater detail in our video this week. But there is one thing I want I wanted to point out, which is so amazing, um, because and a couple of years ago I actually spoke about this in one of our in one of our films. But you know. Uh, in one year, I think it was 2018, the, the week that we were reading Parshat Lech Lecha, um, the physicist Stephen Hawking was in the news because he had passed away that year. But the, that, the very week that Parshat Lech Lecha was, was being read in the Torah, his, Stephen Hawking's latest last book was published. And so he was in the news and he, he basically... Um, 
he basically explained in this book that the expression was he explained that the universe um, does not need a creator. And that was his line. How to understand the universe without the need for a creator. And my first reaction in hearing that was like, why is it that you want to? Why, do you, why are you driven to explain the universe without the need for a creator? In any event, he, Stephen Hawking was interviewed with, by Larry King before his death. And in that interview, he, he made this statement. He said, gravity and quantum theory caused the universe to be created spontaneously out of nothing. He said, because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And I was thinking to myself at the time that Avraham Avinu and Stephen Hawking are like polar opposites because, but not as individuals, as, as archetypes, but they, they, they looked at the same thing and they reached opposite, uh, opposite conclusions. Yeah, because Abraham looked at, he looked at the universe, exactly. looked at the and, physical and, makeup of the world and said, there is one God. So I want to talk about that, I, exactly what I want to talk about. But first of all, Hawking said that because there is a law such as gravity, he said the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So the interviewer responded, okay, how did the law of gravity come into existence? And then Hawking said, gravity is a consequence of the M theory. The M theory. The M theory. Hold on. Which is the only possible unified theory. He said, that's like saying, why is two plus two plus, two plus four? Two is, why is two plus two equal four? The scientific account is complete. And theology is unnecessary. So he's saying gravity came into being because of something called the M theory. So I was very curious. So I went to learn what the M theory is. And so Wikipedia says, in non-technical terms, M theory presents an idea about the basic substance of the universe. So far, so far, there is no experimental evidence that M-theory is a description of the real world. <laughs> Nevertheless, it is the leading contender for a universal, and I quote, theory of everything that unifies gravity with other forces such as electromagnetism. M-theory is the only theory known to elegantly unify quantum mechanics with general relativity's gravitational force in a mathematically consistent way. So Jim... What what this is basically saying is that this is like some sort of like uh, dying, gasping attempt to, by all means, assert whether or not it makes any sense. Because as as it even said in, in the article, there's no experimental evidence that it's even a description of the real world. But well, maybe it, it, these people don't live in the real world. But it's like it's like the dying yeah. gasp of 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 something that is trying with with all its might. Right. To be able to to say that there is no creator, it is a need. He's, he's Stephen Hawking said that science can and this is his quote, can, science can explain the universe without the need for a creator, because it's important to him to be able to say that no one directs the universe. And, and I think that, that that the practical application of this is because as soon as a person doesn't think that there's a need for a creator or that there's any direction, then there is no personal responsibility, not for myself, yeah. not for others, not for, not for the whole world. And it also means that everything is meaningless, but, and it also means that everything is random. But if that's the case, the human condition is bleak. And so, and so now I want to talk about science for a minute, because this is what the Midrash relates. The Midrash says, in the morning, this is part of Avraham's process of spiritual attainment, right? That he went through the backstory, right? The backstory. So the Midrash says, again, it's about his youth. He says, in the morning, he saw the sun rising in the east. So he thought, this must be God. This must be the king who created me. And he prayed to the sun all that day. But in the evening, when he saw the sun set and the moon rise, he said, this must also govern over that other God that I was praying to because it became dark. So it doesn't shine any longer. So he prayed to the moon all night long. Then in the morning, when he saw the darkness pass in the eastern sky brightening, he said, all these must have one king that covers over them, the Holy One, blessed be he. And the Holy One, blessed be he, saw Avram's desire, so he revealed himself to him and spoke to him. So I believe that every word of our sages is so, so deep, that it is not anecdotal, that it is not a, a children's story. And I don't believe that Avraham was some, was some Neanderthal who, who gaped in fear at the sky or, right, or some primitive looking for anything at all to worship. I think that this Midrashic description is so prophetic and that Chazal knew everything. And I think that they are referring, are you listening to me, Jim, because this is so deep? I think they are referring to the struggle against the mindset of, of Stephen Hawking. 
I think I think that the, the, the midrashic description of Avraham's interest in astronomy and his search of the heavens can can best be understood in the light of the Rambam says in, in Guide for the Perplexed that Avraham understood that the whole world was mistaken and that the thing that caused their mistake was that they, they were worshiping the stars and the planets because at the beginning they started the primitive primitive men those early generations started worshiping the luminaries because they were they were like um, uh, they were giving them honor because they felt that they were emissaries of Hashem. So they were giving them honor, but then they lost the truth altogether. But the, but this is the deep thing. What does it mean to worship the stars and the planets? I, I don't think it just necessarily means prostrating before them and, and offering them offerings. I think it's a reference to the worship of science, right? The worship of science with the, with the creator himself very neatly exercise, exercised from the picture. Just snip him out. Right. And then you can say that science can explain the universe without the need for a creator. Who needs a, who needs a creator if you have science and you have the M theory? But that is an, another cult and cultish way of looking at life that Avraham was fighting against. And it still exists because, because the, the, the whole idea is that there is a reason. And the reason is us. The reason is man. And man is the, is the crown of Hashem's creation. Man is the purpose of Hashem's creation. For for two things, Jim, for realizing with gratitude that there is a Hashem in the world, and for emit, for imitating, emulating, acting like Hashem in this world, which is Abraham's whole thing in life, which is mm-hmm. Chesed, which is opportunities for loving kindness. But the difference between the two outlooks in in my mind is that if you look at the at the universe as not having a creator and being random, aside from the bleakness of it all. It's also like a, such a free ticket to that will that will actually lead where we've seen it lead in these in these previous generations that we've been reading about. It, it's going to lead into the total unraveling of the of the divine image in which man was created, and it's going to lead to total wanton decadence because there's no boundaries, right? Yeah. Whereas the opposite of that is the assumption of responsibility for myself, for my neighbor, loving my neighbor as myself, loving Hashem. Can being concerned with the advancement of humanity and the betterment of humanity, and that is the secret of Psalms eighty nine, because Psalms eighty nine is about Abraham, and in Psalms eighty nine, he is referred to as Etan Ha'ezrachi, the friend. Etan, which of course means like. It's a, it's a language of strength, of being steadfast, right? Eitan, the Ezrachite, Ezrach is a citizen. Ezrach in modern Hebrew mm-hmm. is a citizen. And Abraham was the first citizen of the world. Yeah. Because yeah. he was the first one who stood up and said, this has to stop. This nonsense has to stop. Someone has to stand up and say, this is where it stops. The buck stops here. And take responsibility. And Hashem himself was looking for such a person. Can you imagine Hashem's disappointment, as it were, after 20 generations, and, and they still aren't getting it? And so it's like, this is how I've always understood how Avram suddenly, again, virtually out of nowhere, makes an appearance at the end of Noah, after, after like you say, when the dust is settling, right? And he comes forward. And it, to me, it's like Hashem is bringing him from backstage, introducing him, Parting the curtain, take a bow, Avraham, because uh, because Hashem is basically saying, "Will someone please stand up and promise me, guarantee me that the legacy of Adam Harishon will continue, and mm-hmm. that and will someone please get up and and guarantee to me that this nonsense will stop?" And that is yeah. Avraham, well, and and that's is, why Avraham. Just one more word. That's yeah. why Avraham was so was so connected to the tomb of the patriarchs from the moment he discovered it and wanted to be buried there because he was the continuation of Adam himself because he is now going to affect, to, to put into motion the tikkun that until now has not been done. Yeah. Well, Avraham, uh, you talked about the unified f- uh, field theory. What Avraham Avinu did is he he looked at all of the same aspects of, of creation, of the universe, of the physical realm, and he created the unified field truth. 
Wow. Because look at that word unity. Unity is the key to all of this. And I think what I think our listeners really need to see is that this is not a rejection of science at all. This is a rejection of of uh, thinking that masquerades as science, because real science possesses a unique honesty to it. This it's, is exactly what you and I were talking about last week, yeah. about Dr. Schroeder. My, yeah. my good friend, and, and by the way, we, we got some wonderful emails from people who wanted me to repeat that name, and I, I sent a lot of folks the, the links on Amazon where they can order his books, The Science of God, Genesis and the Big Bang, uh, God According to God, Dr. Gerald Schroeder, he's a, a nuclear physicist, and he has a beautiful presentation in these books of the perfect synthesis of the most modern science that you can imagine and the most ancient Torah and a true Torah scholar is not only not afraid of science, but uh, but understands the the beautiful complement that science is to the true knowledge of Hashem. But the pseudoscientists who just propone these theories in order to advance their own, if, if you'll pardon me, godless agenda—that's mm -hmm. the difference. Well, you know, Rabbi, eighty percent of the Nobel Prize winners of science believe in a creator, 80% of them. And you know what the explanation is? The explanation is, is that someone who believes in God, who believes in the true nature of God, the infinite God, is because when you believe in a creator who's, who is of the infinite, you believe in infinite possibilities and you expand your thinking in the realm of science. You don't lock it down. This is something that is remarkable about when you read the Tower story and you and you read that they were the people were all of one language. It doesn't have the word there is not lashon. It's not one tongue. The word I've forgotten the, what the word is now, but it's not lashon. But it's a word that literally means. The limit of, of Safa, speech, Safa, Safa. Right. It's right. It, there is a limit to it. You, right. These the people of the tower limited their thinking, and here in the dust of the tower emerges a man who takes. He, he uh, listen, Avram Avinu was not. He was a he was a mathematician. He was a brilliant mathematician. That will come up later in the story when they go to Egypt, uh, which is in the in the Parsha this week. Uh, he understood the calendar. He had to. He understood and astronomy. He had to, and because he came out of he came out of astrology central. What are the what what is Babel known for more than anything? The astrologers. But what they had done is he he turned all of that on its head, and he said, "Wait a minute, we're not supposed to worship these things. They're supposed to be a key to us understanding the physical realm." And and God looks at this man who sees the world clearly. He sees creation clearly. He sees his source. And he says, you know what? This this man, and so what does he do? He said he says, you need to leave all of this, this milieu. You need to be, you need to stand up. You're a solo act. And you need to leave and you you're going to become now all the nations have tried it their own way. The, the, the word nation appears for the first time uh, after the tower. But Hashem says, now I'm going to show you how to create a nation, a model nation. And I'm going to start with this gentleman named Avraham. And I think that the tower really represents the, the worship of science, because Nimrod really was, uh, he really represents here this tremendous technological boom and advancement. I mean, the, the, what the, 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 the um, sophisticated technology that they employ just to build that tower, right? The same with technology. Science with an agenda. Exactly. Science. So, well, it was this, it was science that led to the fact that they were able to weep over one stone falling and, and to continue working when a person falls. So it was, but it was the, and the agenda was, it was, it was scientific um, knowledge that propped up their worldview of denial. That's yeah. exactly what it was. And so onto yeah. that scene bursts forth Avraham using his scientific knowledge that he, that he gleaned from all his investigations, using that knowledge to prove that there is one unified theory, and that is the creator, and it's not a theory. Yeah. And out of that, he says, you know what? God gave me free will. 
I'm not going to be subject to agendas. I'm not going to be subject to tyranny. I'm going to go away from all this because God has shown me I can go away from all this. And this is the start of a nation and, and a nation that is um, unified. Amen. There's that there's that word again, unity, because really that's what that's what uh, a nation is basically uh, families and language and and a land. But the difference is with the with the nation. And by the way, I want to say this again. I'm going to upset some people. This is where we learn the the very important point that God did not create a religion with Avraham Avinu. He says, "I will make you." What? He, what does he promise him? A people. A people. I will make you a nation. I will make you a father of nations. And and uh, 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 a nation. And and by the way, again, the word religion is not even, a, there's not even a Hebrew word. I know, word. and there's I don't no, even know why you always say that people are going to get upset because, and I know that you and I agree about this so wholeheartedly and that many yeah. people do disagree because they also have an agenda, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. But the fact is that the Torah is so specific about the fact that the Jewish people are a people and not a religion. And it starts right here. I will make of you a great nation. Nation. And that's, exactly. that's really what it's all about. Yeah. Um, so Abraham I, I only say that, I only say that because I have Jewish friends who are kind of in the, the, the sort of, they're, they're not observant. And I remember saying this to them and they got terribly upset. I know. And, 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 and then we have, you know, we have, because, because I want, I, I want for our listeners to open up the Torah and I want them to understand what applies to them. The, the principles of the Torah, these teachings even today apply to all of us, but the specifics of Torah law, of the laws, the mitzvot, this is, you know, you shall, uh, certain things in the Torah, the 613 apply to, this is a charter. This is a Declaration of Independence, a Bill of Rights for a specific nation, and if we want to, if we want to emulate those things, wonderful. As non-Jews, all the nations should try to emulate this nation that is outlined here in the Torah. This is an instruction book for making a, a, a great nation, and God says, Nimrod, you blew it. All your compatriots blew it. Now I'm going to show you this is the way a nation should operate with these ideas of unity, of families who are, who are together. And what, what binds some of the nations together are uh, the Romans were bound together for their lust for conquest and blood. What set apart Israel as a nation is the idea that, that the families that, that came together and created Israel were families whose mission was to keep alive the idea and the concepts and teachings of the one true God. Amen. Amen. That is so beautiful. And these parshiot are so, so spellbinding. And um, just the whole concept of Avraham's emergence onto the scene now and his slaying the foundation for the people of Israel and all the, the, um, travail that he went through and, and that all the forefathers went through to establish the nation has so much bearing on our lives today. Amen. I, you know, and I want to tell you how grateful I am to be able to sit here with you today and talk this, talk like this, because, you know, you, you, you're so kind when you say I'm a Torah scholar and all that, but you know what I, you know, if you say so, amen, thank you. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't possess uh, I wouldn't be the recipient of all these wonderful teachings if it was not for people like you and your ancestors who, who have kept the Torah alive, Rabbi. But what Avraham teaches us is that the job of the people of Israel is to bring Hashem into the world, is to teach the Amen. whole world about, about the one God. This is exactly what we are supposed to be doing. So let's, let's do it. And we will benefit from it greatly. Hey, Jim, I want to thank um, uh, our friend Ayelet, who has been um, doing a great, a great deal of work on uh, our website, www.rabbirichman.com, which is the home of Jerusalem Lights. And uh, if our listeners would like to check out our site, it has uh, not only a new look, but it is much, much easier to navigate. You'll find a lot of information and all of our productions and archives there at www.rabbirichman.com. 
Also reminding everyone that uh, we have a number of Zoom classes that you can join. Um, and we'd be happy to have you and also to receive past recordings of past Zoom classes. And also there are a number of options for private Zoom meetings as well there at rabbirichmond.com. Amen. Have a wonderful, safe, healthy, blessed week. Don't forget to, to pray on Rachel's um, anniversary. And if you're hearing this afterwards, you should be praying every day. And that story of Rachel's incredible uh, self-control and, and her kind of like... Her care. Yes, and also her coming, coming before Hashem and just telling it like it is, like her humanity shining through. That's what's so amazing because, the, because mm -hmm. what the Torah teaches us about these great people, that they were so holy and you would think that they are just not of this world, but actually what, what the Torah really teaches us is that, they, is that the godliness in them shines through and illuminates their very humanity. That's the beautiful thing about, about Torah is that everyone is only a human being, even the greatest. And what we do with that humanity, whether we elevate it or whether we allow it to descend, is totally up to us. Thank you.